Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's where we're at. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 this morning. So if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 20, and we're going to read that together here. It's a good portion, but we're going to, look, we're going to read the whole chapter, see the whole scene play out. You can follow along with me. Chapter 20 of Acts, verse 1. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, and he departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, that one I don't get really well, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Thessalonians Aristarchus uh, and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the, and the Asians, Tychicus, Tychicus and Trophimus. This went on ahead and were uh, waiting for us. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. It's about to get weird. Okay? On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, and he bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on aboard and went to uh, Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to uh, Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots, through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, your own selves will, rise, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. <clears throat> you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I thank you so much uh, for your word this morning. I thank you for a time to that you have gathered us together this morning uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you gathered us together this morning to, to look to Jesus to one another, with one another. Lord, I, I pray that you would make the gospel known, that you would make the good news of Jesus known to us, that you would help us to see just how big and how great you really are, that we would also see how great your love really is for us and cause us to put all our hopes in you. I pray that you would say, what you once said, that you would have each one of us hear what you would have us hear and do a work in our hearts as we increasingly submit all of our life to your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen. So what keeps you up at night? What keeps you up at night? What holds your attention like until the dawn of the next day? I remember this one Christmas when I was a little kid. I was probably about 12. I think I was 12. We lived in a two-story, we lived in the upper, like in a, the second story of an old house on the hill over in Somerville, right? And my room was uh, on the back, it was all windows, it was like an old sunroom, right? And so I went to bed that night, it's Christmas Eve, I go to bed, I'm in my sunroom bedroom where I can see out and I can see all these houses down the alleyway and whatever, and for whatever reason I was really excited that Christmas. I was really amped about what was going to happen the next morning. I guess I was expecting a really good gift, right? And I could not sleep. I couldn't sleep at all. And I was just stayed up all night long looking at all those houses. And I just waited and waited and waited to see one light go on in any house, right? Like if I saw one light goes on, go on, that means other families are up doing Christmas and I can wake up the whole house. So I stayed up all night. I watched those houses, and around 5 or 5.30 in the morning, I saw a light go on. I was like, it's Christmas. 
everybody up, right? And I went and woke my mom up. I don't think she was too happy about that. But she got up. She was a pretty good sport. We all got up. We tore open presents. And I'm pretty sure that we were done with Christmas and back in bed by sunrise. That Christmas, I stayed up all night because I had high hopes. I had high hopes for the next morning, and it kept me up all night. What kind of stuff keeps you awake? What kind of stuff keeps you up all night? Before we explore that more, let's just kind of catch up with the narrative. I know we just read it, but I just want to talk about what's going on here. Like, if you remember last week, Reggie preached on uh, Acts chapter 19, and there was a riot that broke out in Ephesus. Well, now the riot has calmed down, and Paul calls the, the disciples together. He encourages them. He says, farewell, I got to go. And he kind of goes on like a tour with this band of brothers uh, to, to, to all over the place. They go all over the place. There's a bunch of cities there that I can barely say, right, uh, that they visit. And somewhere along the way on this journey, Paul starts feeling compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He said he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He starts feeling that, and he, he wants to get there by Pentecost, it says. It must have been pretty early in this trip. Because he says, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, as we just read, he says, basically all I know is that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and, affl and affliction waits, awaits me there. Right? So we know that as he's traveling, he's already talking about this. The Holy Spirit is kind of compelling him to go. And he's talking about it. And people are like, hey, imprisonment, affliction, that's what awaits you in Jerusalem. He's like, okay, but I'm going to go. And so Luke, the author of Acts and an eyewitness of these accounts in this particular part says that Paul was hastening to be in Jerusalem, that he was like going with a sense of urgency. And call, he was called by the Spirit to go and trying to be there, if possible, on Pentecost, although he believes that nothing but imprisonment and affliction awaits him when he arrives. But on his way, here in chapter 20, Luke just kind of stops and expands just these two stops on that journey, these two scenes, and he puts them together. And the first one is in Troas. It goes something like this. Paul and the others, they spend an evening in an upper room with a large group of believers. It sounds kind of familiar. Paul spends an evening in this upper room. They're breaking bread. They're talking. He starts talking, and he just has a ton of stuff to say, right? And so he's preaching, and one hour turns to two hours, two hours to three hours. Pretty soon, it's close to midnight. There's lamps burning. It's probably pretty warm in there. And it was a work day. So all the people in there are probably tired, but they're staying up, and Eutychus, who's a young man who probably worked all day and is tired, is trying to stay awake, but it says he's overcome with sleep in the window, and he falls to his death three stories, right? And then Paul goes down, and he bends over him, and the young man's brought back to life. That's huge. That's a huge thing. He brought somebody back to life who just fell out of a three-story building, and then they just kind of like go upstairs and eat bread and talk some more until daybreak. Like, okay. <laughs> the sort of thing usually in Acts, we see a huge celebration, not so much here. They just go back upstairs, they talk and they break bread and converse with one another until daybreak. They stay up all night. And then the second scene is this meeting with the Ephesian uh, elders. And it kind of goes like this. Paul's decided, like I said, he's got to get to Jerusalem. He's got to go there quickly and he wants to say goodbye, right? He knows there's danger awaiting there, awaiting him there in Jerusalem, at least as far as he can tell. And so he wants to say goodbye to uh, 
the church in Ephesus where he'd spent a great deal of time and energy and done a great deal of ministry, but it's just a few months ago, there was a huge riot that broke out in Ephesus. And every time he goes there, he gets caught up in some stuff, and he just doesn't have time to go deal with that. So he invites them to come out to him. The elders come, and Paul, like, encourages them, and he warns them, and he charges them. And they cry, and they say goodbye. He says, it's the last time I'm going to see you. They pray together, and they walk him to his ship. Those are the two scenes that Luke kind of expands for us on this trip in chapter 20. And before we get too deep and, and get too far, I just want to ask that question again, like I asked at the beginning, what keeps you up at night? What keeps you up at night? Man, preparing for this message was so difficult, right? Just trying to figure out what, the, what, what God had for us here. I listened to several, like other people deal with this passage. I listened to several pastors preach this passage, and the, and, and most of them went in three directions that I just didn't quite get, and this is how they went. One of them is that uh, I saw preachers and heard preachers use this passage to explain why we meet at church on Sunday, right? This is why we gather on Sunday. This is why Sunday is the Lord's Day. I read and I heard how this passage gives permission to preachers to just preach as long as they want. That was weird. I feel like, don't preach that sermon. Uh, and lastly, I'm serious, I heard this more than one time, uh, I've heard this passage preached as a warning about falling asleep in church. I mean, are you, that, I just felt like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, Eutychus wasn't in sin, and he didn't fall asleep and die because he, fell, because he was in sin, right? Like, that's not what happened. Eutychus fell asleep. And he did die. But, and there may be bits of truth in all of those. I don't want to say there's no truth there. But I don't think it makes real sense that, sense that Luke's main goal in this passage uh, has anything to do with any of those three options. Like we've dealt with this before in Acts, right? We've got to keep asking the question, why is Luke writing this book to Theophilus? Like what's his whole point? He's writing, we said this in the very beginning, He's writing to show how Christ is building his church by the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Maybe you remember this. Luke is showing how the advance of the early church hinged on the work of the Spirit and that it continues to be the Holy Spirit who makes Christ known. It continues to be the Holy Spirit who makes the reign of Jesus over our hearts a reality. And it continues to be the Holy Spirit who advances the kingdom through the church, by making them witnesses to, of Christ to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it makes very little sense to me for Luke to take a chapter, which I don't think he wrote chapter 20 at the beginning, like the number, but whatever. Uh, it makes very little sense for Luke to take this section and just sidestep his entire purpose in order to make sure people meet on Sundays, right? Especially since, like, as we've gone through Acts, we've just seen the church, like, living all of life together every day, not just Sunday. And it makes very little sense for Luke to sidestep his overall purpose to explain to Theophilus that preachers should be able to preach as long as they want to. And it makes very little sense for him to sidestep his purpose to make sure you all know that you're not allowed to fall asleep in church. I just can't even, I can't even with that. That's crazy. But there is something about staying awake that I think Luke wants us to get. I think it matters that Luke tells these two stories together. 
And I think it's a mistake to isolate them from one another or to isolate them from the rest of the book of Acts. You see, Paul says it in Ephesians as he meets the elders. Ephesians, uh, I mean, he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 31, he says, stay alert, right? Right before that, 28 through 29, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He goes on, therefore, stay alert. And this is kind of a warning we've heard before. If you've been around for even just a year or so, last fall we went through 1 Peter. If you remember that, we went through 1 Peter. Peter says something very similar when he's talking to the elders in his letter. He says it in uh, chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. And it's something that we've heard Jesus say before either one of these guys ever said it. Right? He says to stay awake on many occasions, Jesus does. But in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, 35 through 37, listen to what Jesus says. He says, stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may, be, they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. That's why I'm asking us this morning. What keeps you awake? What keeps you awake at night? What keeps you alert? Because Luke says that Jesus says to stay dressed for action, to keep your lamps burning, and to stay awake. And then he chooses to pair these two stories together in Acts. Look, the first scene, Christians in an upper room discussing the gospel and breaking bread together, lamps burning all night when a young man falls to his death and Paul heals him. And the second one, Paul's farewell address to the elders of the church at Ephesus, Right, A large portion of which is a warning and a call to pay careful attention and to stay alert. So I think it's the question that's worth asking us this morning. I think it's like pinching ourselves to make sure we're still awake, that we're not dreaming. What are you paying careful attention to? What keeps you awake? Like just a few weeks ago, now, I'm a night owl. I stay up a lot anyways. But a few weeks ago, I was up really late at night, and I was just wrestling with some personal stuff, right? This wasn't like staying up uh, at Christmas when I was a boy, right? It was like that adult, stressful, stomach in knots, tossing and turning, kind of staying up, that kind of miserable stuff that we don't want to go through. And I was just up. I was just questioning stuff. I was having doubts about something. I, I wanted to know what I wanted out of my life, was I fulfilling the roles that God had for me as a husband and as a father and as a pastor? Was that even what I wanted? Was, you know, whatever. I won't go into all of it, but, but as I was praying and kind of wrestling through that, I finally just said to God, I'm not content. I'm not content and I want to be content. And when that came out, like, it, has a, it had a lot of meaning for me. It was a fresh reminder of the gospel for me. 
because that's exactly what I had struggled with several years before, right? I've, I've struggled with this before, of not being content, and my lack of peace, my lack of contentment uh, has led me to chase after things I probably shouldn't chase, right? And it's led me places that couldn't fulfill me. And God taught me through those circumstances several years ago that my contentment could not be found in any of the things I had put my hopes in. Nothing I thought I could achieve, nothing I could gain could actually achieve what I wanted from it, right? I couldn't be content because of those things. They could never give me that because, listen to this, because peace and rest and contentment flow from the surety of our hopes, right? It flows from the ability of whatever we've placed our hope in to actually deliver, right? To be able to actually give satisfaction and joy. And nothing else I went after could do that. God had taught me that. And what I found was the gospel, right? I found Jesus. I kind of heard anew several years ago when I was really wrestling through this. I heard anew how he had gone out for my salvation. Jesus had gone out for my salvation. That he loved me to death, literally. And that while he was there, he defeated death. And I realized, man, that's power beyond my comprehension. I don't even, that's power if it's true. And I heard anew that Jesus had made a promise that all this broken world was under new rule, new reign. It was under construction too, and it was being reconciled, that God and Jesus were reconciling all things to himself, and that one day he's coming back, and that everything that's broken would be healed, and it would be finished, right? That was something worth putting my hopes in, and I felt like, man, he had proven more powerful if he could defeat death, and he had proven his good will toward me, right, and coming to save me. And so I could put my trust in him that he was going to put it all back together. So he could, I could put my hopes in him. And what I experienced, what I found those years ago, right, is that a true and better hope that Jesus actually led to peace and contentment, right? It produced some courage for me to face the ordinary, everyday stuff of life which led to experiencing some real joy and some real satisfaction, which produced some real experience with the actual gospel, which produced more peace and contentment and rest and more uh, joy and satisfaction. It kind of has become a cycle that I've been in, but it's peppered with nights like that one, with my doubts, right? It's peppered with my own forgetfulness, my own distrust, my own need to hear the gospel again. And those reminders often come from scripture, they come from prayer, and people who are willing to tell me the gospel that night, it just came from the word in my prayer where I said, I want to be content. And it's almost like there are these times where I get, like I'm wide awake physically at night because there's something that's trying to grab my attention and lull me to sleep spiritually, right? Right? Like there's something that's trying to lull me away from placing all my hope in Jesus. And that causes some tension and some struggle. Check this out. Eutychus falls out of a window three stories up and dies on the ground around midnight. Paul goes down and by the power of the Spirit, uh, Eutychus comes back to life. And then the night just kind of goes on. <laughs> that's so weird. Um, they go back upstairs, 
They break bread. They talk until morning. Sun comes up. The people leave with the young man who is now still alive, and they are comforted greatly. And what about this? Paul feels constrained in this story, right, by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, but everybody's telling him that the only thing that awaits you in Jerusalem is imprisonment and affliction. And in the next chapter, chapter 21, he's going to make one more stop. Somebody try, actually like illustrates, like binds himself up and says, the Spirit says, like, this is what waits for you. You're going to be bound like this. And Paul's like, I'm going. I'm going. And we know he believes that all the things they're saying are really going to happen because he goes and tells everybody goodbye like he's walking into death. But Paul presses on. I want you to hear this. He says this in, in, in Acts 20, verse 24, when he's talking to the Ephesians. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And in verse 33, he goes on, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or peril. And here's my point in telling you those things. Where is Paul's hope placed? Where is Paul's hope? It's not in gold, it's not in silver, it's not in apparel. It's not even in his ability to evade suffering and affliction. It's not in his ability to stay physically safe and unharmed or even alive. Paul's hope is in Jesus Christ alone because it's through Jesus Christ alone that a boy fell from a window and died and came back to life. Paul knows that's worth putting your hope in. There's nothing or no one else that can do that. And the reason I point all this out is because this is how we know. This is how we pinch ourselves. This is how we know whether we're awake or whether we're becoming over or whether we're over being overcome by sleep. This is how we know if we're staying alert, if we're paying close and careful attention. So the question is, are you staying awake? But the real question is, where are you placing your hope? Is your hope placed fully in Christ alone? Is there fruit from whatever you're hoping in? Like peace and contentment that surpasses understanding, that produces courage to face whatever, whenever, wherever, that produces satisfaction and joy and more hope, Where are you placing your hope? What do you think is going to satisfy you? What do you think will finally make you content? Would you just objectively look at it? Can it deliver on the promise? Can it deliver on the promise of satisfaction and joy and rest? Really? Now, over these last several chapters in, in Acts, we've dealt a lot with idolatry. And I don't think Luke is going to let it go. I think that's where we're at today. Really, I just think that idolatry is like the thing that we need Jesus to deal with in us, right? The good news of Jesus, that he died and rose again, is that he's king and Lord of all, and that he is God, and that there are and is no other, and that he has proven his goodness, he's proven his power and his love for us, and that he went out even to death, and that he defeated that too and that he's with us, and that he's promised to reconcile us with himself and bring about a complete healing. 
Luke has been showing us all through this book just how the Holy Spirit is going about awakening hearts and minds to know and behold that truth that Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all and there is no other. And the whole story, it's like he's just going about freeing people from their captivity to idols of all sorts so that they can, be, they can turn to Jesus and find true life, more abundant, real life, how they can come awake, really. Listen, Paul's warning, I think here in chapter 20 to the Ephesians, is a warning to us at Redemption Church as well. Our adversary wants to lull us to sleep. Like Eutychus in the window, he wants us to be overcome with sleep. He wants to keep us unconscious of Christ's lordship and rule and his power and his goodwill towards us. He wants us to believe that Jesus doesn't have us in his hands. He wants us to believe that Jesus doesn't even know what the good life really looks like. He wants us to believe that life can be fulfilled in something else or somewhere else other than Jesus. That real rest, real contentment, real peace and joy and satisfaction is found somewhere else. But he only wants us asleep in in order to devour us and to stop the advance of the church. This is his weapon. This is what he's trying to do. And he lulls us to sleep with his favorite tool, idolatry. He entices us with fantasies and dreams of other things that could fulfill us, right? He wants our eyes off Jesus and chasing some false reality. He wants our hopes placed in someone or something other than Christ. So this morning, church, it's an idolatry question again. It's not going to go away. That's what Luke's doing. That's what Acts is, that's what's happening. Where are you placing your hopes? What kind of fruit is that really bearing? That's the question we should be asking. Where are we placing our hopes and what kind of fruit is it bearing? There's a couple a couple examples here. Paul tells us tells the elders in chapter 20 verse 29 through 30. I just read it, but we'll read it again that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, I think there's a warning here against idols, idols of power, idols of control, idols of stature. There's a warning of any idol that would have us using one another to serve ourselves as a family. Like everybody wants to be a leader, everybody wants to be the deal, they want people to follow them, they want to be popular, whatever the idol is, and they they would turn people's gaze, we would all do this, we would turn people's gaze away from Jesus in order to turn their gaze on ourselves. But what would it achieve? What does it achieve? What fruit does it bear if we use each other to serve our different idols? What comes about? Is it bringing about healing in the world? Or is it just compounding the brokenness? Maybe this is a better question. If our hopes are in Christ alone, if our hopes are in Christ alone, what kind of fruit are we seeing among each other at Redemption Church? Like, Are you more focused on Jesus as Lord? Are you increasingly submitting all of life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because of how we are pointing one another to Christ? Are you experiencing the gospel in in a way that gives you real hope 
a hope that produces uh, peace and courage and joy? Does it produce in you an overflowing of gospel proclamation back to one another? Is that the kind of fruit that you've experienced? Where are you placing your hopes and what kind of fruit is that bearing? Here's another example. Paul said that he coveted no gold, silver, or apparel. And then he goes on to say in verse 35, In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. I think there's a warning here. I think there's a thousand warnings here that should be close to home for us in our like consumeristic culture, right? There's a warning here that we might put our hopes in something other than Jesus. And I think you could probably preach a whole sermon just on this part, but how many idols can pop up here with gold and silver and apparel and keeping things for ourselves and not helping the weak? Are our hopes in gold and silver and apparel or with receiving rather than giving? Are our hopes in those things rather than in Jesus? Like, are you distracted with things that you want or even things that you perceive that you need? I get distracted by those things. Cars, homes, vacations, gadgets, whatever. What about a lifestyle that you want to live someday? Or the money you'll have when retirement comes? Or the inheritance you'll be able to give your kids? Are we convinced that money is the best inheritance that we can give our kids? Or maybe your hope is just in having what somebody else has. I just know that we can all identify with these things, but what fruit does it actually produce? Is it worth placing our hopes in? Is there anything that we could buy and consume or keep that is worth placing our hope in? Does it ever produce rest and peace, contentment, courage, joy, or does it just leave us toiling for more? I know we know the answer. But if our hopes are in Christ alone, on the other hand, How will it affect our use of gold and silver and apparel? Jesus says it's better to give than receive, so it ought to be obvious like what kind of fruit it produces in us, right? Generosity? We could ask that, like, are we a generous people? Are we like Paul? Like willing to go all in? Like with all our money, with all our work, with all our time, with all our energy, all our investments, Do we provide for those who have need among us? Do we provide for the ministry of this family and this neighborhood to reach outsiders? Do we build margin into our lives so that we can receive people and walk intentionally towards outsiders? Those questions feel uncomfortable. I get it because they make me feel uncomfortable. But it's because the adversary, the devil, is using our culture's idols to lull us to sleep to chase false realities and totally buy into the matrix. So the question this morning is, are we awake, Redemption Church? Are we awake? Are we in danger of falling out of the window or being devoured by a lion or by wolves? I'm not asking you to do anything different today. I'm asking you just to pinch yourself, right? I'm just asking us to pinch ourselves to see if we're still alert. Are we dreaming? Are we asleep? Are we awake? Is our hope in Christ or is it in something else? 
I think we should be praying that if, if we're being overcome by sleep this morning, that we'd be shaken awake and alive to Christ, and we'd behold Jesus. And I'll close with this. It's just something I found encouraging this week as I went through the passage. Eutychus doesn't stay awake in this story, right? Eutychus doesn't stay awake. He doesn't stay alert. He's not paying careful attention. And he falls asleep, and he falls to his death. That's gruesome. Good news, Ben, right? But death is defeated. Paul bends over him and brings him back to life by the power of the Spirit. Eutychus was dead because he fell asleep, but Jesus brought him back to life. Do you see the grace that fills this story? See, why the call is to stay awake and to pay careful attention and to pinch ourselves, to keep our eyes open and on Jesus, it isn't because everything is riding on our abilities. That's good news. It isn't because everything's riding on our ability to stay awake. It's because what Jesus has done in the cross and his resurrection and what he's doing is worth staying awake for. Right? It's worth staying up for. Nothing's going to stop him. Not our falling asleep, not our death, nothing. Nothing will stop what Jesus is doing. This is Jesus' church. And in this passage, when he's talking to the Ephesians, he said this is his church obtained by his own blood. And the building of the church doesn't rest on my ability or your ability or anybody's ability to stay awake. It rests on Jesus. That's good news. And I believe that Jesus loves us deeply. That's why it's good news for us, right? So that if we start nodding off here and there, he's faithful and just and trustworthy, and he'll keep lifting our heads up so that we can behold him. He'll wake us up. See, figuratively, I guess, I don't want us to stay awake all night like I did a few weeks ago, like tossing and turning and worrying and just bearing the the weight of the whole world on our shoulders. That's not what I mean. That's not the kind of staying awake that we're talking about. Right? I don't think that's the kind of alert that Jesus exhorts us to. I don't think that's the kind of awake that Paul is exhorting these elders to. I think he wants us to stay awake like that Christmas when I was a boy. Right? Are your hopes set high? Is there something worth staying alert for? Is there something really good coming? Are you waiting for the light to come on across the street, waiting for Jesus to come back, waiting for dawn so you can wake everybody up? Are you awake? Are you alert? Are your hopes set on him? Or are you being lulled away and looking elsewhere? That's the question we need to consider together this morning. We're going to move into a time of uh, response like we do each week. And during this time, I'd ask you to ask those questions to yourself and ask God like where you're at. Ask him to help move your heart, reflect. The band will come up. They'll lead us in a time of worship through music. That's a time where we can sing to him, but we can also pray and sit where you are. That's fine. Uh, if you need some prayer, there's a couple places. There's a place you can pray in the back. We have a prayer request box back there as well where you can put that in. But you're welcome to grab anybody to pray with you as well. During this time, we also take up our offerings where we worship with our money, right? And we obey to the tithes and the offerings, and that's an act of worship. So our offering plate is in the back, and you can put it in there. You can also give online. Um, And then also every week we take communion. 
So when we take communion, we just come down these side aisles. There'll be people up here serving. You take a piece of bread, you dip it in the wine or the juice. We're breaking bread almost like Paul and his friends in Troas that night. Where we remember Jesus Christ and we proclaim him as Savior to one another. So if you are a believer in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come whether you're a member at Redemption church or not. Let's remember Christ together and proclaim his goodness to one another. And if you're not a Christian, we ask that you not come and do that because you can't say that he's Lord and Savior, but we do ask that you hear what we are proclaiming in this action. And hear the invitation. Wake up. Come alive. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for uh, this day again. I thank you for this time together, and I thank you for Jesus, I just thank you for the good news of Jesus. You, God, have gone out for us, for our salvation. You went to battle for us. You died for us, and you beat death. And you're powerful beyond comprehension. And you've proven your goodwill toward us. That's something to behold. That's something... Lord, open the eyes of our hearts so we just understand how great your love is for us and how trustworthy you really are. And help us to place all our hopes in you. Jesus is better than anything and everything else, Lord. Help us believe it. And when we don't believe, help our unbelief. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You will. 
foot of the cross justified And your spirit restored by the rivers that pours From my blessed Savior's side I threw wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree On that beautiful, scandalous night you and me were atoned by His blood and forever washed white That beautiful, scandalous night I threw wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree On that beautiful, scandalous night
it for a moment. How's everybody doing? Uh, we got a couple announcements. Uh, so that's better. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll just kind of go over the next three weeks, the things that we have coming up. I figured that was the easiest way to lay that out for you rather than give you a bunch of dates because most of you don't have your calendars except my wife who's pulling it out right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm very thankful for that. All right, so uh, this week, uh, this is part one. Uh, this week we have a foundations class happening actually today upstairs. Uh, right outside is our lobby. And if you go up those stairs, uh, the very last room on the left is our office. Uh, and that's where we have our foundations class. Uh, if you don't know, foundations is an opportunity for you to get to know a little bit more about who we are as Redemption Church. Uh, so 